ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Perhaps a little strangely, an issue that had received virtually no attention, although it had been on the radar for 12 months, suddenly gained all the interest. Uh, We have seen work expanding into every nook and cranny of our lives. The issue is called the right to disconnect. Meaning employees won't have an obligation to answer calls outside of their paid hours. And we really need to put limits on the power that employers have to make sure that work follows us everywhere we go. Some economists say the change is overdue, but industry warns it could harm productivity. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on this episode of This Working Life, the new right to disconnect laws. What do they mean for you and your workplace, and what can you do to prepare? Work has changed dramatically. It is absolutely vital for the rules around work to change in response. This is Dr Chris Wright, Associate Professor in Work and Organisational Studies at the University of Sydney Business School. A term that's been popping up in the discussions around the right to disconnect is availability creep. So what exactly is it and why is it a problem? It basically uh, refers to yeah the way that technology, particularly smartphones, but you know, other forms of connectivity have really eroded the boundary between people's work life and their personal lives. Uh, now, that boundary has always been fluid to, to varying degrees in different lines of work, but I think it's really been smashed by the way that technology has creeped outside of boundary of the workday into people's home lives, family lives and personal lives. What's been its impact on us? Uh, there have been some studies, uh, one from the Centre for Future Work in Australia two years ago, uh, which found that more than 70% of employees are working outside of their regular working hours and over 40% of those were doing so uh, because of activities of their managers or their employers, just contacting, emailing, phone calls, the like. I think especially emails is the big one. It's also been exacerbated, I think, by the pandemic where we've become used to able to perform work from any location, whether it's home, even when people are meant to be on holidays, they can be contacted. This is Dr Gabrielle Golding, Senior Lecturer in Law at the University of Adelaide. So the idea of availability creep is that notwithstanding your private time and perhaps being at a location other than your normal workplace, you can be contacted. The idea that we clock off at, say, five o'clock at the end of a workday has kind of disappeared in a way. It has meant that a lot of people have performed a lot of extra overtime and not necessarily being compensated for that appropriately. And it's not just impacting our bank balances, it's also affecting our mental health. Significant proportion of around a third of employees reported being more stressed and having an adverse impact, this availability creep upon their well-being, their mental health. Uh, Around a quarter reported that it had a negative impact upon their personal lives, their relationships with their family, with their friends. And 20% had said it made them less committed to their job, less productive at work. And for some of those employees, it had made them consider leaving their jobs, which I think is a very revealing finding because it suggests that the, the impacts of availability creep have a negative, or in part, not just for employees' well-being, but also for organisations. If employers are finding their employees less committed to their job, uh, less willing to you know, put in that extra effort because of the way that 
technology had really crept into their personal lives. And this is something that, this is a challenge that businesses need to grapple with, otherwise it's going to affect their organisations and how they function. The ability to not be able to properly switch off has been shown time and time again to have pretty negative impacts for people's mental health and well-being. Uh, and that compounded over time, not just puts people in the red in terms of not being compensated fully, but secondly, it's really amped up a lot of stress, anxiety, tension that relates to work and a lot of, I'd say, lack of satisfaction in, in people's working lives as well. So what does this tell us about our inability to disconnect? Yeah, I think it's the fact that we are geared towards being constantly contactable, that that is part of workplace culture, that that is part of how employers, employees have grown to operate with one another and that relationship has been fostered in a way that it's kind of become, unfortunately, the norm. Chris, let's talk about the right to disconnect as enshrined in law. How does it read? The way that it's written is that an employee may refuse to monitor, read or respond to contact or attempted contact from an employer outside of the employee's working hours unless the refusal is unreasonable. Okay, so what does unreasonable mean here? Uh, unreasonable, okay, so there's a, I think a lot of that right will hinge upon that term because whether contact or attempted contact by an employer outside of an employee's working hours is unreasonable or not will depend upon a range of things. It will depend upon the nature of the job. It will depend crucially on whether the employee is receiving compensation in some form for the possibility that they might be contacted. I think things like how the contact or attempted contact with the employee is made and how disruptive that will be to the employee taking into account their own personal circumstances, so things like family responsibilities. That's Sarah McCann-Bartlett, CEO of the Australian HR Institute. So there is a lot of, you know, what would be reasonable for this kind of business, this class or, or type of employee the reason we're contacting the employee and what the expectation is. You know, for example, um, one email might be fine, but an email followed by a barrage of telephone calls and texts getting more and more frantic probably would not be considered reasonable unless it was a real emergency. But if you were in an organisation where there could possibly be emergencies, then what you would do is you'd have some guidelines around that. If there is an emergency, this is how we'll contact you. So, you know, in some lines of work, particularly those where there's a regular expectation that someone might be contacted. Associate Professor Chris Wright again. I mean, I think the media is a good example of this, perhaps. Mm. Journalists never know uh, when the next story is going to land, right? But there's plenty of other jobs that we could think of as well that might fall into this category. Employees typically will receive an on-call allowance that might be a separate allowance from their salary or their wage, or it might be something that's rolled into their salary, depending upon the nature of, of the award or the agreement or the employment contract. So that's one scenario when employees compensated for the reasonable expectation that they might be contacted outside of hours. In some other areas of work, employees will get additional compensation if they are contacted. So I believe in the police force in some states, if an employee is contacted outside of working hours and they receive different compensations, different rates of pay, 
depending upon the nature of that contact. So, yeah, a lot, a lot really hinges upon that unreasonable, uh, what is deemed mm. to be unreasonable, and how that applies to different jobs and different industries. Let's go into practicalities then. So from an employee's perspective, what does the right to disconnect actually mean? It means that if an employer, a manager, emails or calls the employee outside of their regular working hours, so if if the regular working hours of uh, of, for your job, Lisa, is nine to five. If your manager contacts you at 9pm at night and says, I've got an urgent problem, I want an answer to this by 11pm or by 6am, then you don't have to reply until you know, your working hours, your regular working hours resume. Similarly, if they call you, you don't have an obligation to pick up the phone again and, or to return their call until your normal working hours resume. So that's what it means in practice. And when we're also talking contact, are we talking, uh, what about third parties? Uh, third parties, uh, yeah, that's covered in the legislation in that uh, yeah, if, say, a, a client calls the employee outside of working hours, is someone in sales perhaps, if a business customer or a client calls a sales rep outside of working hours, the sales rep isn't obliged to reciprocate that contact, you know, to answer the call, answer the email return the call or email until uh, regular working hours resume. And for teachers, that would include then students or parents of students? That's right, yeah. So in uh, one of the other Senate committees, I think it was the Closing Loopholes Bill uh, Senate Committee, which also which recommended this uh, law, and uh, they investigated this too. In their report, they drew upon examples of, of where, you know, from the teachers' unions, of where teachers had been contacted by parents uh, with you know, demands that they kind of respond. I can see you've read, read my text message, you know, you need to respond. Uh, and this was kind of you know, deemed, I think, pretty uh, fairly to be unreasonable, an unreasonable expectation. You may have heard some rumblings from some parts of the business community about the right to disconnect laws. I think the business community is not so concerned with the individual pieces of workplace legislation, but concerned that there's a very, very high volume of change in a very, very fast or short period of time. Sarah McCann Bartlett again from the Australian HR Institute. And that uh, is a lot of change to put in place on the ground properly, because if you don't do it properly when it's law, there are serious ramifications. It's a right for employees to disconnect. Actually, in truth, it's really a right to ignore communications from their employers and other people related to their employment outside of their working hours. Do you think it's required, Sarah? I think that what's really interesting is that we surveyed employers at the end of last year about the right to disconnect and 41% of organisations told us they already had some sort of right to disconnect policy in place. So already it was happening in our workplaces. Now, it might not have been a full-blown policy that had all of the rules and requirements that is uh, in line with the new expectations. But it could have been things like, we don't allow emails to go after 8pm, we have an automatic cutoff and then they get held overnight. Or these are the circumstances in which we might contact you after hours. But certainly employers were already thinking about this. 
when we asked them who did it cover, just under 70% of those that had one of these policies said that all their employees were covered, but about a quarter said uh, we exclude or exempt senior management and managers from the right to, to disconnect. And the vast majority of them said it's working pretty well in our workplace. So, you know, this is something that I think was already starting to be either a movement or um, something that employers were thinking about in terms of well-being of their employees and the right to a personal life. So um, what are some of the practical steps that you've been looking into in terms of how to implement something like this? Well, I think to get ready for it, and and once it does come into law, there'll be a six-month delay for most employers and 12 months if you're a, you're a small business. But to make the transition easier, think about some of the practical measures that you can take now to prevent or reduce contact with employees outside working hours. And I've already mentioned the ability for the IT team to say, Um, We're going to quarantine emails sent after a certain uh, point in time. Think about doing an audit is a a very formal word, but have a look at the impact to organisational processes, the way that we work now and employees, and, and write down what are the pros and the cons, what can go wrong, what will we need to change, what's going to be easy and what's going to be be difficult. And then start talking to staff about it because staff come up with really great ideas and have a perfect understanding of what is and isn't going to work in, in practicality. And having that two-way communication process in place to test out changes, explain what they're going to be, and also start that socialisation, which is the start of training, would all be a be a really good idea. We know that some organisations have said we've got asynchronous working, mm. that is working at different hours when you um, it works best for you. Now, asynchronous working might not quite sit right with the right to disconnect if uh, communications and emails are going backwards and forwards at different times. Or if you're part of a global organisation where emails are coming in and going out again at different times might not um, sit quite right. So there might be other ways that you have to deal with that or um, a very clear statement that if somebody from an international office sends something to you, you are under no obligation under these circumstances to respond. Sarah, what would you say to individual managers about how they might prepare for this right to disconnect? Um, definitely think about uh, your your own teams. Think about uh, changes to work processes within your teams. Talk to the team members themselves. There's also a whole lot of technology out there that could really support this. And we know that a lot of the large retailers, rather than if someone doesn't turn up for a shift or places in a shift suddenly become free, they're not telephoning their employees. There's uh, a database or an app where employees can actually say, hey, I'm looking for more shifts and this is where I'm available. And the app actually puts that together and then automatically contacts them the way that they have said they would like to be contacted and when. Um, So already organisations are putting those um, tools in place that give the employees agency, not just the employers. 
There's a couple of things that can be done, Lisa, I think. So the first is to ensure that their policies within the organisation are up to date. I think this is really key. Chris Wright again, Associate Professor at the University of Sydney Business School. For organisations who don't adjust practices to these new laws are going to you know, get caught out, I think, and that could lead to some problems, you know, fines potentially even. So ensuring that there are policies in place around saying to managers, it's not reasonable for you to expect uh, employees to you know, return your calls or respond to your emails outside of working hours. Uh, so don't send them. <laughs> I think that's what a good policy would be providing, very clear guardrails around that. And also an indication policy to employees that you don't need to do that either. I think training for both employers, managers on one hand and employees on the other around the new responsibilities, the new rights under these new laws. Chris says that it's important to ensure that jobs are designed in a way that people can get the work done within their regular working hours. And I think this is something that we've lost somewhat in Australia. Some of my colleagues who are specialists in job design uh, have said that this practice where jobs are really a lot of thought and design is put into them, into, into what the particular part of the job uh, are involved, um, you know, how that can be performed within a certain time span, whether that something that is designed as one job actually needs to be two jobs, perhaps, that this needs to be given more attention because there's a sense that many employees out there are doing far more within their work role than is reasonably, well, than, than can be possibly done within, say, a 38-hour week or within whatever our number of hours that they're engaged for. So I hope that it will also lead organisations to reflect more and to invest more into resources to ensure that jobs are designed in a way that allows employees to get their workload done within their normal hours. So there's less availability creep. There's less, less pressure from managers onto employees uh, outside of working hours and unsociable times. Some commentators argue that the right to disconnect could unwind our flexible hours gained through the pandemic. I would disagree with that. Gabrielle Golding again from Adelaide University Law School. It seems a bit contrived to suggest that simply because you have a right to disconnect that that then somehow removes your ability to work flexibly. I would say that if you have a right to disconnect, it is simply the right to cease communication about work in the hours at which you're not working. It doesn't say that you must work nine to five only and that that is a limited box in which your time is is spent. So as long as you're being appropriately compensated, it's totally fine to have a right to disconnect and to still work flexibly. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, fear-mongering Chris Wright again from Sydney University Business School. There's been a very divided reaction to the new laws. You know, the trade unions have been very supportive of it. Um, there've been, you know, some of the reaction from the HR profession seems to have been positive in part, but some of the major employer groups have been very critical of the bill. But I think that these are necessary guardrails, putting in place limits to try to restore that boundary between uh, work and non-work, because we know that when those boundaries are eroded, that you know, the research evidence clearly suggests uh, several studies showing that you know, this leads people to uh, to get burnt out, to get less satisfied with their with their job, to become increasingly stressed. And you know, so these are these are outcomes that we want to be avoiding. Another argument against the laws is that they'll impact productivity. If we look at 
uh, similar arguments around uh, the implementation of a four-day work week. Overwhelmingly, they've reflected that with that slightly compressed working time every week, so 20% less, their productivity levels have actually dramatically increased. They're able to decompress. People are less stressed, I guess, happier to be back at work during the working time that they're able to be more productive in that sense. And I dare say that with the right to disconnect, we'll see a similar trend going forward in that when people know that they've got the ability to switch off when they're actually on, it's going to be capitalized on by employees. There was a very good analysis that I read the other day from a professor in the UK who said that this type of law will hopefully lead to less busy work happening during work hours. In some organisations, there's a sense that time could be better spent, you know, that there's too many meetings, there's there's too much work that isn't that productive or that related to people's main job roles, uh, and that uh, this is something that's maybe been enabled by technology, you know, Zoom meetings, these sorts of things, and that um, this type of law will hopefully ensure that when people are at work, they're doing work that's productive and not, not work that might be, by, from some perspectives at least, a bit of a waste of time. So I'm hoping that it's, it will lead to more you know, thought going to how, how job, how organisations are designed in a way that is more beneficial to, to the staff and to, and to managers as well. Now, Gabrielle, uh, you've written a paper on the right to disconnect in Australia. You were doubting, actually, whether it would be, ever be enshrined in statute. How surprised are you? Maybe not so much surprised, but relieved. Relieved that we are finally recognising the state of play that employees find themselves in when interacting with their bosses and that we're keeping up to speed with developments in technology and that we're keeping up to speed with how work is performed in our contemporary lifestyle, where we do all have a mobile phone, perhaps a laptop, some way in which we can be contacted to perform work, perhaps not during our normal working hours. So I'd say I'm relieved that the law has finally caught up with that state of play. Thanks to my guests. Dr Chris Wright, Associate Professor in Work and Organisational Studies at the University of Sydney Business School, Dr. Gabrielle Golding, Senior Lecturer at the University of Adelaide Law School, and Sarah McCann-Bartlett, CEO of the Australian HR Institute. So just to recap, here's some practical tips about how to prepare for the right to disconnect laws coming into effect from July. Think about how you and your teams work now, what could go wrong, and what you'll need to change moving forward. If you're a leader, start talking to staff about what they think will be easy and what will be difficult, especially if you've got interstate or global team members to manage. Being proactive and discussing workflows will help smooth the way. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson, mixed by Kerry Dell. And if you're worried about these changes and if it'll cause more conflict in the workplace, next episode, we're here to help. We've got the world expert on conflict. He's literally had to negotiate with autocrats. Once I found myself being yelled at by the president of a country, the president of Venezuela, in this case, Hugo Chavez, in front of his entire cabinet. And I'd been working there for a year, so I felt like, oh, 
oh, all the work's down the drain. I was feeling embarrassed, flustered, whatever. But then I remembered to go to the balcony. And the way I did that was I remembered what the prize was. Was it, was it really going to do me any good to get into an argument with the president of Venezuela? Or, you know, I wanted to calm the situation down. So I bit my tongue and I listened to him. And he went on for half an hour right in my face. But I was just listening, studying from a balcony perspective. And listening turns out to be the key tool there. And then I watched his body language. And your body language is important in negotiation. I watched his shoulders slowly sink. And in a weary tone of voice, he asked me, he said, so, Yuri, what should I do? This may sound simple, but it's not, this, because it sounds simple doesn't mean it's easy. This can be some of the hardest work we human beings can do. William Yuri, he co-founded the Harvard Law School program on negotiation. Be sure to follow our podcast so that you get this episode when it drops. This episode was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 